Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn. And hello, everyone. Well, I'll tell you, it's another beautiful day here in the 40s, and I'll take it all winter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So, um, Caroline, we've been doing this now for over 16 years. No, it can't be. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. <laughs> and okay. I, I, this, this book today is, is unusual. We've done a lot of historical fiction, but I don't think we've yeah. ever done with this, with these two settings. It's got dual settings. Right, right. Yeah, and two, two things happening simultaneously that were important in history. Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't you introduce our author today? Okay, happy to do that. Uh, the, the book is Terra Nova, and the author is uh, Henriette, Henriette uh, Lazaridis. I think mm-hmm. I said that right. Okay. <laughs> and she is the author of, she's also the author of The Clover House, which was a Boston Globe bestseller. Her short work has appeared in ELLE, The New York Times, New England Review, The Millions, Pangaris, and more, and she has earned a Massachusetts Cultural Council Arts Grant. She's a graduate of Middlebury College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and the University of Pennsylvania. Having taught English at Harvard, she now teaches the at Grub Street in Boston. She founded the Drum Literary Magazine and currently runs the Corona Writing Workshop in Northern Greece. Oh, my gosh. I just... Because she has just doesn't have enough to do, obviously. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Writer's Voices, Henriette. Thank you so much, Monica and Caroline. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you. So Terra Nova is uh, the story of two fictional Antarctic explorers who are racing to reach the South Pole in the year 1910. And the woman that they love, who is yes. who is a suffragette in London, and facing her own dangers at the time. So yes, she is. yeah, oh, sorry. yeah. So <laughs> let let's just you know why these two sort of adventures. Well, I began with the our Antarctic adventure. I had I wanted very much to write a story about people who had reached the, the moment of seeing their rival's flag at the South Pole. And this is a bit of a spoiler, but knowing that they had been beaten in this race and who had then faced an ethical question. And so I always knew I wanted that Antarctic story. It's very important to me. And I was interested in who they would leave behind and what this person would be like. And I had in my mind a kind of an analog for Odysseus's wife, Penelope, who is weaving a tapestry every day and telling the suitors who are clamoring for her, for her hand, telling them, sure, sure. When I finished my tapestry, then I'll marry one of you. And then at night she unravels everything that she's done. Day. So I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about the artist who stays home and has to, sort of feed her ambition in a different way 
because you can't go to Antarctica with these men, um, and and is uh, experiencing some freedoms while they're gone, even though she loves them both and wants them to come home safely. But she's experiencing freedoms that they um, that she doesn't have when they're there. Um, and so I put her in the mix. And then, of course, the suffrage movement was happening, was swirling around London, England at that time. And it seemed the logical thing to do to make her be involved in the suffrage movement. It wasn't my, well, it was an early decision that I made in my notes when I'm thinking about the book. You can see that I'd say to myself, like, should she be involved in the suffrage movement? And <laughs> very early on in the process, I said, no. And I shied away from it and went in a different direction. I had her, she was still an artist, but she wasn't involved in the suffrage movement. And it took a few rewrites over a considerable amount of time before I came back to the idea of suffrage and realized that, of course, it had to be that because this is her way of using her art to feed her ambitions, but then claim independence quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, while the men are off doing a sort of traditionally masculine independent thing in Antarctica. Now, the these two characters that are the Antarctic explorers are fictional. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they are competing with a fictional Norwegian explorer. Mm-hmm. But this there was actually this was actually happening at that time. So why why go why instead of doing like a historical fiction that's sort of biographical, why did you choose to make, you know, do it completely fictionally? Well, so Robert Falcon Scott, who was my childhood lifelong hero, actually, Robert Falcon Scott had done his first expedition to Antarctica in, uh, before this novel takes place. And in 1912, he did his race with Amundsen, uh, the Norwegian explorer. That happened in 1912 when they were racing to be first to the pole. And so because Scott didn't, he he acted nobly. He didn't do anything unethical. So I couldn't use Scott to explore the <laughs> kinds of things that I wanted to explore. And so I slotted my race in ahead of Scott's. So basically, I suppose in this, in the universe of this novel, Scott exists. I, I think that there's even a reference to him in the novel. So he exists, but if you follow the logic of the story, he's not going to go because that race has already taken place in 1910. Mm. Right, right. Yes, I, I, so, I was going to yeah. ask you that. Once it's done, once once it's once and done, is it done again later years later? I mean, once it's they've gotten there and, and planted their flag, is that it? It's a one and done thing. Well, I think it kind of was. I mean, with being first of the poll, when uh, Scott got there in 1912 and he saw Roald Amundsen's flag there, and Amundsen claimed the poll, he was the first one. Um, there were other explorations after that, but they they were for sort of other functions. But yes, once someone had gotten first to the poll, that was kind of it. I mean, I suppose, and I, I have to say, I'm not at the moment. I can't remember all the details of who and when, and there have been things like, you know, the first woman to reach the pole and, and the first recently, I think maybe five years ago, there was another kind of race to do a crossing of Antarctica by two individuals who were trying to do an unsupported crossing of Antarctica. Oh, wow. So from oh. one edge. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting. If you think crossing, you're thinking of Antarctica as, 
vaguely circular and you're thinking, oh, so they started at one end of the circle and went through the middle and to the other end. And neither of these two men did that. They followed a trajectory that looks like a, like an upside down L. They kind of went across and then down. So it, it, there's a lot that's been said about those journeys and that I'm sure will continue to be said. But anyway, all of that is to say that there there still is Antarctic achievement going on as people try to find different ways to be first at something. Or even if not okay. first, okay. I mean, like climbing um, Mount Everest is still a big sure. thing, even though you're not going to be the first. Is right. that still, are there still expeditions to the South Pole just so someone can say, I did it? I think so. I mean, I think at the moment there is a group of, is it three or four, I can't remember, from New Zealand, the Antarctic Heritage Trust, I think, has an expedition going of three people who are pulling sledges behind them on skis, and they're going to the South Pole. So there, people do this for, like, scientific research reasons and studying, you know, how the body behaves in the cold and things like that are still ongoing. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. That's it's interesting. How did you, I mean, you go into a great deal of detail in terms of the, how they survived in this environment. Can you tell us a little bit about how you researched that? Sure. I, because I grew up from specifically the age of seven, completely obsessed with Robert Falcon Scott because I'd seen a documentary about him when I was that age and I kind of imprinted on him. (laughs) Um, Because of that, I've always had books about Antarctica kind of lying around the house. And really my whole life, I've been from time to time picking these books up, looking at them, reading a few passages. I don't think I ever sat and read some of these things start to finish, but it was always in my mind. I was always thinking of Robert Scott and of Antarctica and Antarctic exploration. So some of the details I kind of just knew from decades of, of reading and looking at photographs and things like that. When I was writing, I actually, once I began writing the book, I made a point not to look at those documents for that time because I didn't want to be influenced by the language of Scott's journals. I just, I didn't want to have any of anyone else's writing kind of seeping into my mind. But when I would get to a certain point when I would think, oh, hold on, I need to know how much distance they can cover in a day. Then I'd have to go to the journals and start looking it up. Like, what what are the records? What what does Scott say at that time? How far could they go? How many degrees of or not degrees? How many minutes of latitude could they cover? So I would just look through my books and and find it that way. Um, things like what kind of fuel does a Primus stove burn? <laughs> I'd have to sort of stop drafting and go and look it up and oh okay fine got it and then put it in. Um, so and then details about being cold and things like that um, sounds like you, you you're if you're thinking 40 degrees is toasty, then I think we all know <laughs> we all are familiar. Uh, with yeah. the cold. Yes, um, we're, we're in Iowa. And, yeah. So, you know, yeah. Um, you know what it's like when it's below. Zero yes. And, yes. And you only have to experience that a few times. Not to say Scott and Haywood in the our Antarctic summer, they're not dealing with horrific temperatures 
like the Antarctic winter, mm. but it's still, it's ridiculously cold. I've never been, but this is what I, what I know. Um, but you, we all who've been in cold situations know what it does feel like, you know, how your eyelids kind of, they tap together when your eyes get cold mm -hmm. a little bit, or what it feels like to take a breath of cold air, how it kind of pinches in your nostrils. Um, all those sensations, I incorporated them and maybe sometimes made them a little more extreme for the extra cold that my characters were dealing with. What kind of amazed me was that, that, you could even sleep in a, you know, they could have a tent and sleep in it and be almost, and also even when they were pulling the sled, they were almost warm. Now I do know you can be very, very cold and still work up a sweat <laughs> because, mm -hmm. inside yeah. your heavy clothes and, but, but with everything well protected and, um, but, but I would just think sleeping in that would be so hard. I think so. I mean, I've never slept in a tent um, below probably, I can't even remember, but I want to say it was like single digits. Um, and we, I remember going to sleep in the sleeping bag with all my layers of fun, yeah. everything, the heavy parka, the summit parka, the underneath parka, everything, the hat, the gloves. <laughs> and over the course of the night, taking layers off mm -hmm. and feeling actually like pretty comfy once you, <laughs> once you build up that thing. And I, 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 who knows what, we do have, have, obviously we have diaries and stuff, but I don't know that they were ever fully comfortable when they were in their tents. It sounds like in their huts, which were these base camps that they had, it sounds to me as though they were able to be comfortable. You see photographs where their heads are bare, their hands are bare. And I try to think, what, what did that feel like? Because if it was 30 degrees and they're walking around, Feeding the ponies, because Scott brought ponies to Antarctica. That was one of his tactical mistakes. But, um, you know, if they're walking around feeding the ponies with bare hands, <laughs> what does that feel like? And what is that doing to the, to the skin on their fingers? Yeah. Although if it's above, you know, if it's 20, 30 degrees above, that's not bad. But if it's 20, 30 below, that's a different right. story. Then, then we have a problem. Yes. Yeah, and they did. They did suffer frostbite and I mean horrible, horrible, horrible um, deprivations. I feel sorry for the dogs. Yeah. Oh, me too. Oh my oh, god. Me too. Me too. Me too. Um, but not all. Not all of the dogs. Yeah. Some of the dogs are. Okay. Some of the dogs are okay, but <laughs> we need to... but even so, they they it was hard on them. Hard. They didn't have enough yeah. food. They, well, at yeah, least in at least in your food. story, they don't have enough food. Maybe maybe the real life sled dogs did. I don't know. I think it was pretty tough <laughs> on everybody. It, it, re, recent sort of post Scott's journey, the research showed that they had actually miscalculated how many calories they would need. So they really were starving. Oh wow! They were trying to do incredible feats of physical endurance, and they just. They just didn't have enough fuel. Even even if they had had everything they planned to have, it wasn't going to be enough. So wow. So how many people lost their lives trying to get to the South Pole? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. That is a good question. I know you know on in Scott's party, they all five the polar party they all died. Um, I think before they even split off into the polar party, there were two other men who died. 
Amundsen, I don't think Amundsen lost anyone. Um, Shackleton didn't lose anyone on that expedition. So I, may, I, I feel like I might make a mistake if I tried to give you a specific number. Yeah, wow. Okay, let me ask you something. We always talk about the South Pole. There is a North Pole, correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do people, is it the same situation or is it not as cold there or? Well, I'm not really familiar. The part about the North Pole that interests me is that, um, and at one point I was going to include this, I did include this in an earlier draft of the book, but um, Admiral Peary, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's P-E-A-R-Y. I don't know if it's Perry or Peary, but he's the one who's credited with going first to the North Pole. But what what interests me is that his achievement has sort of an asterisk next to it, because even at the time, he didn't provide the kind of second measurement data to confirm that he had gone to the North Pole. So even back then, there were doubts about whether he had actually gone or whether he had lied, whether he was lying. Oh. And and I was interested to find out that um, I had not remembered or realized, I'm not sure which verb applies, but I hadn't, let's say, I hadn't realized that Robert Scott's wife like Haywood's wife, Viola, was an artist. She was a sculptor who was um, said to have had an affair with Rodin. Um, She actually sculpted the medal that was given to Perry uh, for the North Pole. But interestingly, the the motto on the medal just says, for Antarctic, sorry, I'm saying this wrong, for Arctic exploration, which I think is kind of interesting. It doesn't say for being first to the Arctic. They kind of hedge their bets. Like, we're giving you this medal for Arctic exploration. And of all people, it was Robert Scott's wife who made the medal. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And was that, so that was before the first, um, before the, uh, what's who is what was the name of the guy who reached the South Pole? Oh, South Pole was Emmonson. So okay, him. and so Perry got the North Pole before they got to the South Pole. I think that's yeah, correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. and um, I think I read somewhere that Edmondson also went to the North Pole. Yeah, that I I. I Yes, I, I believe you're right. I'm not really an Amundsen expert, but I believe you're right. What was it about? Yeah, he lived a long life. I, it's it's interesting yeah. to me that that you're like so fascinated with with Scott, really focused yeah. on him. So, <laughs> right. So here's why. I think part of it has to do with the documentary that I saw when I was seven years old because I I haven't been able to rewatch that. I know it existed, but I can't find it to watch it again. But I know that Scott was a very, very gifted writer. And I know that Amundsen left diaries behind, but he wasn't as eloquent as Scott was. In in his own language, he wasn't as eloquent as Scott was. And I'm pretty confident that the documentary that I saw quoted heavily from Scott. And it's hard to compete with some of the phrases that Scott has, especially in his final letters, as he knows that he's dying and he's writing letters to to the families of the men on his in his polar party. He writes this message to the public that has in it a phrase that just astonishes me. It says, 
had we lived, we would have had a tale to tell. And it, it, the phrase goes on. But that idea that he's lying in his tent, he's dying and he's writing, had we lived. Wow. <laughs> he's alive and he's writing, had we lived. He's writing as if he's a dead man. So I, I think the documentary kept quoting him, surely. And it's hard not to feel swept up in the beauty of his language and the nobility of his sort of stoic sacrifice. And so for me, that was what interested me was the, the failure, the, the man who, who failed, um, but was noble about it. Um, and I, I think, who knows if I had read more of Amundsen at that young age, might I have had a more balanced <laughs> attitude about these explorers? Might I have been less of a Scott fanatic? I don't know. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Henriette Lazaridis, author of Terra Nova. All right, so now let's go to London. Okay. All right, so London in, in 1910. How did you, you know, you, you did a lot, you must have done a lot of research about that too because there's a lot of detail. You, I mean, you write with incredible detail and, and very, but not, not that it, it never bogs the story down. That's a real talent to be able to get that oh, oh detail boy. in without, without right. losing the story. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that. That was, of course, you know, that's my goal is to make sure that, that the reader doesn't ever lose the story, but feels like, they know where they are and they're understanding something about a different time and a different place. Um, I did have to do a fair bit of research because I knew, I knew a little bit about the suffrage movement. Um, so I knew, for instance, to ask myself that question when I was really just starting to put together what Viola's story would be, I knew enough to say, Oh, it's 1910. She's in London. Should she be a suffragette? And then I said, no, she shouldn't. And then I had to come back to that question <laughs> years later. Um, but I, what I didn't know until I started to dig around in, in books and journals and a lot of stuff that's available online, archives and things like that, I hadn't really known anything about the hunger strikers. And when I hit on the hunger strikers, it seemed like this was where the connection would lie. It wasn't just going to be that my female character was going to be fighting for independence and exploring and being ambitious in the way that the men were only in London and politically. It wasn't just that, but by looking at the hunger strikers, I could start to let the book have a conversation about the male and female ways of expressing yourself through your body. Like what was permissible to men that they could go and put themselves through hardship and they could starve kind of by choice uh, and endure certain things by choice, whereas the women couldn't do the full extent of that kind of exploration. But here they were putting their bodies on the line in a very different way and, and starving on purpose as a weapon, as a strategic um, tactic to claim their independence. So I, I was really interested to discover that and, and, and learn about how these women were, what would happen was they would be arrested for their suffragette activities and put in the women's prison, Holloway prison in North London. And they were, they were put in 
with the criminal population. And they began to protest that they should be treated like political prisoners. And to protest their misidentification, they went on hunger strike. And the prison authorities' response to that was to try to force feed them. So you had the situation where either the women were starving and would be released from prison before their sentence expired because the authorities were afraid they were going to die of starvation, um, or they would keep them in. And at the point where instead they could release them, but no, they would keep them in and force feed them so that they wouldn't die. Either way, it was pretty horrific. Um, and, and they got to a point where they would let the women go uh, before they became dangerously ill, and they would wait and surveil them and see when the women were recovered enough to be rearrested to finish out their sentences. <laughs> so it was really oh this gosh. You know, terrible thing. And, and so I, I wanted to put Viola in the thick of that or in as close to the thick of it as she could go being an artist who has her own limitations. She's, she's not putting herself fully on the line, at least not, not at first. I don't want to. Yeah. Now the women, (laughs) the, the recovering hunger strikers in, in Terra Nova are all in a, like, well, maybe not all of them, but there are a lot in one house in a safe house. That's right outside the prison. Yes, that's real. That Whoa. Is real. That, that is a fact, a historical fact. And actually, there's somewhere I found a photograph. They actually, um, they threw a bomb at the prison from within that safe house. Oh, my. Um, yeah. Yeah, but this was like a place where women would be held or where women themselves made the safe house to, to help women recuperate. And if they left that safe house, they'd get rearrested. They might, yeah, they were reliable to be realized. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It just is shocking to me that that anyone would be willing to go that far. You know, we take we take women's suffrage so for granted. To think that 112 yeah. years ago, yeah. women literally had right. to starve themselves. Right. And I think, you know, we're learning now that we can't really take these things for granted. I mean, it's been very interesting you know, to have this book coming out now when people are, are again. Marching yeah. In various parts of the world, including our own. But yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 the stories of some of the things there were some suffragettes who were especially Militant might be the right word. I'm not sure, but there were arson acts. There were attempted bombings. There were, you know, windows smashed and bricks thrown and things like that. There was one woman whose name escapes me now who went to Royal Ascot, the horse races, and she walked out onto the track in front of the king's horse and was trampled by that horse. She was wearing the colors of the suffrage movement, and she died of her injuries. She just walked right out into the path of the of the oncoming racing horse. It's amazing. It, oh my gosh! What's really amazing to me is like, it's the fact that these women were doing this without having really any role model in the whole world of women being free and able to have their life self determined. 
today it's still you know the courage of like the young woman in iran and and some other places is still mm. amazing but they at least have they have somewhere to look and say yes women can do this have done this are doing this other places why not us mm. where did these women who didn't have anywhere to look for that get the courage yeah i i don't know i guess i have that same question that you have i i don't this is where I don't know enough about the movement to know that kind of inside the spark, mm -hmm. the, the, the more interior stuff. So I, I agree with you. I have that same question. Like where, where did they find the, the courage to, to do this, to put themselves on the line and back then with um, perhaps no other models. Of, right. Of, of, Even guess, to believe that it was do. possible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. everywhere you looked, women were oppressed and suppressed and, and had very few rights. There was, right. and, oh man, and there, and there are people who want to take us back there today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yikes. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Henriette Lazaridis, author of Terra Nova. Henriette, would you like to read a little bit for us? Sure. Um, I will uh, I'll read a section right from the very, very beginning. So this is in the narrative um, of the men, and the heading is 88 degrees, 30 minutes south. So you know that's where they are. Soon they will have to send Tite and Lawrence back. There is no longer enough food for four of them. The men will protest, but it will be no secret that they will be crying behind their sun goggles, tears of relief freezing into grains of ice in the corners of their eyes. Watts catches himself. Their bodies are too desiccated for tears. There is no weeping in this place so stripped of human life. There is only cold, cold like a presence they breathe and like a force to hold them down, hold them in place, even as they inch over endless swales of white and gray, gray-white blue-white. He wants to curse now, again, at this cruel palette. His lenses struggle to find nuance in this stark world, the camera eye narrowed to a pinprick, and even that almost too much for his glass plates. There is only contrast here, white and black, and darker black, and brighter, impossibly brighter white. Cruelty reigns here. Is it not cruel to be forced to crawl like creatures of some frozen anthill or voles beneath the crust of this giant's pasture, eyes screwed tight against this sun? Is it not cruel to continue forward when they have lost most sense of their progress, when to spin like the compass's foolish needle and face in any direction, he merely sits up at the thought, and to set off would make no difference? Except to Haywood. Haywood, who lies in his bag across the tent, who barely speaks all day, lest human interaction distract him from his goal. It is a violence that they are here at all. Four men and four others waiting at hut camp and six more at the edge of a sea from which no ship will depart. No hailing voices ring for two more months. All of them carried away from gas fires, hearts, fenders, beds by the desire of this man, Haywood to plant the flag in the center of this vast expanse of nothing. Watts fumbles in his clothing for his notebook, slipped inside the linen pouch he keeps around his neck. He pulls out the graphite stick, but drops it, 
then scrabbled at the edges of his bag, fingertips already beginning to harden from mere proximity to the ice beneath. Haywood is not mm. stirred. Watts rolls onto his stomach, the sour tang of the seal pelt thick in his lungs, and riffles the grubby pages. At the beginning of the little book is the list he began to keep when they made landfall. Curiosities cited. Penguin, seal, albatross, a band of vivid turquoise water at the base of a coastal berg. It was all eyes then, eager for the pole's new vastness. With time, he added to his list. Spit, pish, blood, things that froze, one by one, elements of his body that this place had overpowered. It is a good, as good a chronicle of their time here as any other. But this is no language for the geographical society. If they live, they will have to find other words with which to tell their tale. Uh, I could. That's nice and cheerful. Yeah. Yes, and and um, <laughs> and I can tell that you kind of did a play on Robert Scott's quote there. I did. That's my little Easter egg to myself. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I can. Yeah. Please go on. Like yes. me to read some more. Yes. So, I, the next, so the chapters alternate between the men in Antarctica and Viola in London. And so this is sort of a little bit into her first chapter. She's at a march on Parliament and she's photographing the marchers with a small camera. Um, she's kind of tumbled down and twisted her ankle and lost her hat and scratched her face. And now she's, she's making her way out and she makes her way along the rail until she reaches open space and lowers herself gently to the street. She waits the foot and sees that she can walk with careful steps. Breathless, she looks back at the march, still pressing at Parliament. Her photographs will show the country. Women must be independent. They will show James and Edward, too. Yes, you traveled to the world's last place, but see what a world grew while you were gone. Look at the power of these women. Is it not almost as great as the strength of you few exploring men? Or greater? driven not by desire or curiosity, but by the need for freedom. It is an hour's walk home to Margareta Terrace, but even with her ankle sore, she cannot imagine taking the underground and being stuck inside a tube after such excitement. She walks slowly west instead, ignoring the cold that nips her ears, bearing the camera at her hip like a creel lined with silver shining fish, each one a piece of light tugged from a brilliant stream. There is a tale somewhere of fish who leap from creels or rivers to grant a stranger's wish. If such magic sprang now from the camera at her side, what would she ask for? Her single and constant wish comes to her mind quick as a superstition. May James and Edward return safe. She rests the ankle, waiting for a line of cabs and omnibuses to cross, and in the moment she is still, her other deeper wish arrives, like something she cannot outpace. May her photographs astonish. May she capture her light like a live thing to flash silver and white and black inside her darkroom and then leap out into the world. Viola shakes her head to shed the idea, the hubris of it, the folly, but the thought clings to her like the cold. She is not sure the photographs she took today will generate that sort of living awe. What can she do to match what James does with his camera at the pole? What can she find in this world to surpass his reflections of a new one? Okay. So that's some more. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll, 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 I'll skip ahead to um, 
another the next chapter of the men and since we were speaking of the dogs um we'll have a little bit of the dilemma that surrounds them um so now the men are at well the same 88 degrees and 30 minutes mm-hmm. south <laughs> so haywood motions to him from the tent watts finishes packing up the camera and the glass plates and joins haywood who was sitting on his bag folded onto itself to fashion a low stool Watts does the same with his own bag. If they could spare the matches, he would light a pipe. I've made new calculations, Haywood says. We have 20 tins of hoosh, six of seal meat, 10 boxes of biscuit, seven of lard, and 11 of potted beef. Each man hauling over 100 miles with the assistance of dogs, assuming progress of three miles each hour. Watts knows this is far faster than they can advance, but says nothing. Consumes 4,000 calories each day. How many do we have left? Not enough. Waits. The dogs must be calculated too, Haywood goes on. But if we eat them, we gain several more days' kilocalories each. Watts makes a disapproving noise. We gain, James, in the eating and in saving what it takes to keep them alive. I'm not going to eat the dogs, Edward. Would you rather die? No, I ask you, Haywood continues when Watts begins a challenge. Would you rather die without having eaten dog or would you rather live? Because it may come down to that. And on that cheerful note, I'll... <laughs> and that was Henriette Lazaridis reading from Terra Nova. So in the middle section, um, you did get in a little bit into the fact that Viola and James are both photographers. This is something else which you go into really incredible detail into not just how they take the pictures, but how they develop them, what the art of photography in in 1910. Is this something that you have always been interested in? Um, how did you learn about it? And and why why the focus on photography in this book? Um, I have always been interested in photography. My father was a really good photographer um, from his teenage years and he was a a big collector of his own things and so I actually I now have um, at least the the slides that he took from I think the earliest slide tray I have is from like 1948 or something Um, you know hundreds of his slides and so when I was um, I think for 14 years on I think that's when I bought my first uh, film like digital not digital what am I saying my single lens reflex camera which I still have um and I did a lot of photography and was in the darkroom a lot in high school and college and a little bit in grad school too. And so it's always something that's really interested me. Um, and with these characters, the photography of Antarctic explorations is a big part of, of the appeal. Honestly, if you look at the photographs, Shackleton's photographer, Frank Hurley and Scott's photographer, Herbert Ponting or Hubert, I always forget which it is. Um, they're, beautiful beautiful images they're just amazing the compositions are incredible um so that always interested me and uh, i wanted (laughs) it came very early on along with the idea of this novel was the idea that photography would play a role um in the ethical question that these men sort of bring into their lives and into the reader's knowledge um, and there's a movie that immediately came to mind. Um, it's from the 70s by Antonioni. It's, um, 
a movie in which a fashion photographer is doing a photo shoot. It's Vanessa Redgrave, very young Vanessa Redgrave, who's the model in this photo shoot. And he's taking a bunch of pictures. And in his dark room, when he's enlarging the images, he realizes that inadvertently he has photographed um, a body. And it's a murder sign, uh, scene. So he's photographed a crime. And he keeps enlarging the images and seeing in greater and greater detail what happened in the background of his photo shoot. And so I always thought that in this book, there should be a kind of a blow up moment. Um, blow up is the name of the film. And I wanted Viola to be the one who was involved in that. So I had to make her a photographer and, and, and have her in her dark room developing these images and looking at these things. I and mean, if you've ever been in a dark room, you know, it's a really cool feeling when you're watching whether it's developing the film or sort of like developing a print when you put it in the last bath and you watch the image kind of come out of the liquid onto the paper. It's, it's a really kind of magical moment. Um, and so I wanted her to have that experience of looking at these images, taking shape and seeing in them something that is not what she expects. Um, I made James Watts use glass plates, which is a bit of a, he didn't have to. In, the, in 1910, plenty of photographers had just begun using celluloid. So he, he could have done all his Antarctic photography with film, which would have been lighter and just easier. But that wouldn't have been as good for the story. <laughs> I wanted his photography to be you know, a burden, a physical burden. There, these boxes have a weight. And if you put them on your sledge and you've got to bring them with you, to the South Pole and then take them back, then you're actually carrying a physical burden along with the, the responsibility of you know, keeping a record of, of this journey. So I wanted him to use glass plates. Also, there's glass plate images, they're incredibly clear because you take the, the, the paper that you're printing the image on, it goes right on to the plate, the mm. glass. So you have no, there's no room for blurring because it's touching the glass, which is why some of these images are incredibly sharp. Um, and of course, Viola too is working in that medium uh, when she's doing some of her photographs. Uh, she also uses a camera called the Midge, which was a small, more compact thing. But it too, the one that she's using to photograph that march, it also has glass plates, but it's like more, it's a box. It's more compact. Okay. She can carry it on her. Okay. Yeah. The cameras they have now, I can't imagine what they can do with them. I mean, you know, <laughs> I was amazed yeah. that they could. I, I was amazed they could use cameras back then in the cold like that. I really was. Yeah, it's interesting. Part of me thinks that well, so uh, there was there would have been a time when it was extremely cum cumbersome because you the only way to take a glass plate photograph would have been to actually prepare the coating that goes on the glass, the emulsion, you would have had to have prepared it kind of on the spot, which I don't, I can't understand right now how they did that. But at no. some point it became a dry emulsion so they could be pre-prepared. And if you go on like the Antarctica historical sites, you can see images of boxes of Paget's glass plates and you would buy them, you know, six to a box or something like that. Um, so at least they could just slot these things into the camera um, and they didn't have to be coating them with anything. But it is pretty remarkable what 
what kinds of things they were able to set up in those kinds of cold temperatures. Yeah, it really is. It, I, I was yeah. amazed. And I don't know much about photography, but I, I can just imagine that trying to keep a camera going in those situations. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and the, the um, process of developing these pictures that um, – like you have Viola developing the ones from that initial march that she, uh, suffrage march that she took mm-hmm. and, and how many times she tried different exposures to try and get the right balance of light and dark and, and not have things blurry. And how did you learn about all of, did you, have you done that type of developing yourself? I have. It's been a while, <laughs> so I had to kind of refresh my memory. And and uh, and I also sometimes I took you know a liberty here and there. I mean, in some ways, you know, Viola. I think a, a professional photographer reading that now might say, "Oh, come on, why didn't she do a test strip?" And I honestly can't remember right now whether she does a test strip or not. But that would be a thing to do. You would take um, a, a, a piece of your of your paper and you would expose different bands of it to different mm. different lengths, and then you would look at it and say, "Oh, okay." Which one do I like the best? Oh, the one that's five seconds. Okay. When I do my actual print, I'll expose it for five seconds. So she does a little more trial and error um, in most of these situations. And she's trying to do what's called dodging and burning. So she's masking part of the image to expose another part of it to more or less light. The way we would now just do it digitally by saying, oh, let me brighten up that. Yeah. A little. Let me just hit it a little more, you know, give it a little more of the effect there. Um, so she's doing it with actually a physical object that shadows the light that's coming down from the enlarger. And you just kind of wiggle it over the image so that you don't get a sharp line. And then you allow more light or, again, less light, depending on what you're trying to do to fall on the, on the paper. Wow. I didn't realize it was so complicated. No, one thing I really liked about your book was the the reading group guide for for Terra Nova in the back, the questions, because um, you know you read you read the book and and you're going along and you're interested in what you know really interested in how these guys are going to get home and stuff, but then you know you lose some of the details because you're you know you're reading and so but then when you read these questions then you think oh yeah how did that how was that how did that go you know. And it was really, mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Oh, good. Yeah, that was an idea. I think my editor and I, and you know, we had that, we put that together. And um, I'm really happy that Pegasus was able to, to go along with that and put that in the book. The one says, one says, a big theme of this book is ambition. All three of the main characters grapple with it. How does it affect each of them and cloud their decision making? Mm. And that was a good question. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've been thinking about that. And another interview earlier today asked me, you know, what what I thought of that same kind of area of, of ideas there. And I think it's a complicated question. Um, and then someone has asked me recently, you know, what would I have done in the situation that the men find themselves in? And I won't say what that situation <laughs> is. Um, but I, but I, I can I mean, and hopefully I think this is true. The whole time I was writing the book, I could see multiple answers to that question. I don't. I don't feel that it's completely crystal clear. At least I can I can understand the moral dilemma. Both sides. <laughs> you can you can understand yes, the moral the dilemma. Moral yes, dilemma. yeah, yeah. The moral dilemma. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Henriette Lazaridis, author of Terra Nova. Um, now, this is your second novel. Is that true? Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, tell yep. us a little bit about the f- your previous novel. The previous novel is very different. Um, it was kind of my, grew out of my curiosity about um, sort of family questions. My parents are both Greek, were both Greek, and I, I had grown up with stories about the Second World War where my parents left Greece when they were in their mid-30s, um, right before I was born. And um, my father had been occupied by the Germans in Athens, and my mother had been occupied by the Italians and then the Germans in the city of Patra, which is over near near the Italian, the boot heel, kind of. Um, and I'd grown up with these stories, and they were such, honestly, they were wonderful stories, which I know <laughs> sounds very strange, but my parents had had, like, these adventures. My father had gone around and put sugar in the gas tanks of German staff cars, and he had once snuck into an air, air base and gotten into a plane and removed the steering chain so that the pilot, you know, the steering mechanism wouldn't work, and it, it's lucky he got out of there. Um, my mother talked about um, parties and sleepovers and um, among other things like, yes, we, we I remember coming home from college and saying, I'm a vegetarian. We shall eat cracked wheat. And my parents both looked at me like I had seven heads and were like, we ate this <laughs> occupation. We're not eating this now. Um, so obviously there were hardships. But I, I wanted to put a family story together around these stories and kind of answer some things for myself about, you know, how did my my mother specifically end up the way she was? Um, She was a difficult person. And I, and I wondered about that. And so I created this character who has nothing in common with me, except that she wrestles with some of the same questions of cultural identity that I have wrestled with over time. And took some of the family stories that I knew and changed them because they were all happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can't write a novel about happy stories. (laughs) You cannot, boy. And I tried for a long time, and then I realized this is the problem. These are happy stories. So my mother did. The title of the book comes from, I never could find the right word for it. Clover in the United States is a very short grass, but clover is the closest translation for the kind of grass that that, um, exists in Greece that is, it grows higher and it's like a silage Mm. grass. And um, my mother did in fact have her family had this farm outside the city where the overseer would cut pathways into the grass and make little houses that were sort of uh, like the opposite of of a bas relief. You know, they were sort of carved into the clover. But but that's great. That's a happy story. But so I thought, well, something bad has to happen <laughs> to these people in the clover houses. And so every every story kind of I had to invent stories that were mm. tragic um, and, and sort of find my way to explore these questions of of the truth and family history and relationships and responsibility and guilt and things, family secrets around the war. That is very different from Terra Nova. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I yeah, and and the book I'm working on now is different again. Um, so, so I can only say that I just find 
there are certain questions that stick in my head and there comes a point when the only way to get rid of those questions is by writing fiction. <laughs> um, and and I'm sure, I think there is a commonality in that, in a way, both The Clover House and Terra Nova have to do with questions of authenticity. I mean, this is a very broad umbrella that I can put both books under, but but it kind of, it is a, a thing that I'm interested in, sort of when people are authentic to themselves, when they present an authentic identity to the outside world, what is the cost of that, the truth, those kinds of questions. You kind of, they're in both mm. books. Now, is your the book you're writing now also um, have a setting in the past? I suppose it does. <laughs> it, it's set in 1972, which shocks To be considered me, historical, you know, considered yes, historical yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right. And, and there is a narrative thread in there that's even further back, that goes back to 1945. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, that's historical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's set in 1972. Wow. wow. Yeah, in the, in America though it's um it's set in sort of not far from where I'm sitting. And right where now. are where are I'm you? You're in Boston. In in Cambridge. In Cambridge, across the river okay. from Boston. Yeah. So tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about Grub Street. Grub Street is, I believe, the largest creative writing center in the country, and I've been uh, an instructor there for, I want to say, the last nine, maybe ten years. Um, and before that, I took classes. It, it's the place where I first, well, I left academia so that I could try to find time to write full-time. And it took me a long time to stop sabotaging myself and actually also to find a, a community of writers um, and Grub Street was the first place where I found that community. It was it was astonishing to me. I had been in another workshop um, before I found Grub Street, but and and that was lovely. But this was a whole world of people, and I started taking classes there, where every Monday night for three hours we sat in a room and we talked about stories. We were workshopping each other's pages, but it was just magical. Um, and so now, um, for a while now, I've been teaching the novel at Grove Street, and um, I, I teach occasionally classes that are by application only, um, but I, I most prefer to teach the classes that you just mm. sign up for. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I'll take anybody. I don't care. Um, I think everybody has a story, and my job is to... Um, it's twofold. My job is to identify what what that person wants to do with their story and then help them make it the best version of their story that they can make and also create a community with each class that can be nurturing for each other in that same mission. I do take that community part pretty seriously. I, I think that's a huge part of it. It's like, yes, you're coming in to class and you're or zooming into class and you're sharing your pages and you're learning from the feedback that you're getting. But I think it's so important too to come in and feel like you're in a team. Mm. Like you're in a little community of twelve people that came to came together for this class for ten weeks and you're gonna have each other's backs and you're gonna really help each other get better. So it's it's very cool. I, I really enjoy it. I also teach a nine month or have taught 
three times now, just finished it, a nine-month intensive where it's the generator. You start with, in theory, you start with nothing, just the tiniest seed of an idea. And by the end of the nine months, you should be most of the way through. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Wow. It's a yeah. cool program. And, the, and then mm-hmm. the workshop you teach in Greece? Yeah, that is um, a, a workshop, a very small workshop that I run in my uh, ancestral village from my father's side of the family. His grandfather and my great uncles grew up, were born in this house that is in the family still. And this sort of I'm kind of the one in charge of it now. I'm the only one in my generation, actually, um, my whole life going there. I always thought it would be a wonderful place for creative expression. And I always like from teenage years on, thought it would be wonderful someday to have a workshop there or some kind of retreat. And I believe I did the first one in 2018 um, or 2017, I forget. Um, And we do, we spend the morning workshopping people's pages. And in the afternoons, you have free time, but also I'm there for sort of office hours and we do craft talks and, um, have dinners together and go on guided walks that that I lead. It's a beautiful mountainous area. It's a part of Greece that's not what people expect at all. People think it's all ocean and whitewash, but Greece is mostly mountainous and it's it's just a stupendously gorgeous area with cliffs and trout streams and eagles and glacial lakes and all kinds of incredible and if someone wants to learn more about that there's a website karuna writing workshop that's k-r-o-u-n-a writingworkshop.com so all right well henriette we're out of time and it was lovely talking Mm -hmm. with you today caroline do you have some final words for us yes i do um as we go through life, you have to make allowances for your friends' imperfections as readily as you do for your own. <laughs> Very good. Where'd you find that one, Mom? <laughs> when I found out, well, I found this on a calendar that a local uh, person puts out every year, and I just talked to him, asking him if he's going to do one. He Aww. can't do it anymore because... Um, yeah, because they're not making it anymore. So. Well, thank you. And thank you, Henriette. Thank you so much, Monica and Caroline. This was wonderful. Well, I enjoyed it.